A grant from the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, a part of the Agriculture Department, has produced, get this, a new type of ice cube. Officials hope the protein-based ice cube will revolutionize the way industries and individuals keep food cold and curb food waste. Dr. Steve Zheng, the director of the Food Safety Division at NIFA, and USDA's Food Loss and Waste Liaison, Gene Busby, spoke with Federal News Network's intern, Abigail Russ, about how this new ice cube will work. You hear Zheng first. The uh, science behind is through nanotechnology, and they use protein as a source mixed with 90% of water to create a gel under the normal temperature is still keep the shape. Once we freeze them, it will keep the low temperature long and keep the food, whether it's seafood, vegetables, meat, keep them much longer than traditional ice. The main accomplishments in that project is the use of minimum resources and it does not produce wasteful materials to the environment, cut down the price for the water ice, and make it usable for households, retailers, as well as throughout food supply chain. So that is tremendous environmental benefits, as well as keep the food industry sustainable. So can you explain to me a little bit about USDA's role in funding Jelly Ice and what exactly nanotechnology is? So nanotechnology is the science of studying and the producing materials and devices of nanometer size. This AFRI funding program encourages applications with innovative ideas to develop nanotechnology-enabled solutions for food and nutrition security with a focus on reduction of food loss and waste. So in 2019, the Jelly Ice Project was funded to be a meritorious application in the nanotechnology program and, of course, was recommended for funding from NIFA. Along those lines, what are some of the benefits you found with Jelly Ice? Some of the benefits include, for example, cost-effective as well as compostable. So it reduce the environment gas emission and help sustain the environment Let me just clarify. The idea here is that by reducing food waste, you won't create as much emissions in harvesting the foods and producing as much food. Yeah, it is one of them. But the main thing is creating this ice cube minimizes a lot of waste from the production to the supply chain to the processing uh, to the table because you can use this new technology in every stage of the food supply chain. And instead of using traditional water ice, it costly and they're not reusable and the ice cubes are reusable up to 10 times at least. And then when you are not using that ice cube anymore, it can be composted. So in every aspect of the entire process, it is environment friendly, sustainable, reusable and cost effective. And by doing all this, we can minimize the food loss and the waste. Dr. Busby, is there anything you wanted to expand upon in that? I wanted to reiterate that food loss and waste is really complex, and it's a very ambitious goal that we have as a nation to cut food loss and waste in half by 2030. And the reality is that we're going to need many different solutions from farm to table to really reach that goal. And so these solutions will likely include a whole range 
range of strategies, public-private partnerships, consumer and business outreach, and new innovations like jelly ice to prevent, reduce, and repurpose uneaten food. No single strategy will help us reach that goal alone. Dr. Zhang, can you explain some of the similar efforts USDA has led to combat food waste and ensure food safety? Yeah, NIFA is extensively invested in research, extension, and educational activities to mitigate food loss and the waste. NIFA has committed approximately $123 million across about 527 projects since fiscal year 2017. Approximately $57 million of competitive projects were under NIFA's AFRI flagship program. So NIFA's funding in research has led to development of innovative technologies to reduce food loss and waste. NIFA-funded technologies in addition to the ice cube. So let me just give you a couple examples. Uh, food coatings to stabilize root and signing pigments for retaining integrity, nutritional, and the sensory qualities of processed whole fruit. Another example is plant-based dispersions, such as cellulose, nano crystals for preventing frost damage in tree fruits and grapes. Microwave-assisted pasteurization systems, which are technologies designed to control foodborne pathogens and have the secondary benefits of extending shelf life of food products. Dr. Busby, is there anything that USDA has funded that you'd like to mention? In the past, USDA has funded the development of new packaging to extend shelf life, new equipment to sort apples faster with greater accuracy and less bruising damage, and also new cultivars such as the keepsake strawberry that is flavorful and has a longer shelf life. I want to also mention that in addition to NIFA-funded activities, USDA also has an agricultural research service which has over 2,000 bench scientists in 90 research centers. So along with all these new technologies, how does USDA work with other agencies to expand these benefits, maybe by combating food insecurity, both within the country and worldwide, maybe partnering with the U.S. Agency for International Development? Will we see agencies partnering to use jelly ice to elongate the lifespan of food? Yeah, the shelf life. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think I can give you a few concrete examples of how NIFA has been working with other agencies through USAID. One is we are engaging closely with Israeli scientists in projects tackling food safety and nutrition insecurity issues. We are also identifying strategies with EPA for cross-cutting collaborations to mitigate food loss and waste. So getting back to jelly ice, I know we've talked about how it's good for personal use as well as industry, of course, but will it need FDA approval? Yes, I think uh, I can elaborate here with some progresses with that technology. Since the filing of the official U.S. patent uh, just a few months ago, the research team has been actively working with the industry to move forward with commercialization. The U.S. USDA may want to consider providing follow-up funding support to 
projects that were funded through USDA for the next step commercialization. So USDA may consider further support for research-based innovation ideas and technology to make it commercialized to benefit the entire food industry. And is jelly ice more cost-effective than typical ice that you would make in your freezer at home? I think that's one of the strongest selling points. It is cost-effective because it can be reused up to 10 times, some reports say 12 times. But the water ice, on the other hand, it melts and it's gone. It's waste of a lot of energy. So the team at the UC Davis, they are continue to address challenges associated with scale-up production of jelly ice cubes. The team expects uh, to have another patent filed this year to expedite the technology transfer for the entire industry. Not just for food, actually pharmaceutical companies can use that technology as well. So it is a very useful experience for research team as well as for the USDA support to understand the market and technology transfer. This type of program certainly is very interest to USDA. Dr. Steve Zhang, the director of the Food Safety Division at USDA's National Institute of Food and Agriculture. You also heard USDA's Food Loss and Waste Liaison, Gene Busby, speaking with Federal News Network's intern, Abigail Russ. Check out Abigail's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast 
have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that, that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do, where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. 
Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.